You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek podcast. This episode presented by Associate Minister Julie Blinko. Today's reading is from Psalm 38, and it's on page 450 of your Pew Bibles, and on the screen, if that's easier to follow. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have pierced me, and your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I'm bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There's no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbours stay far away. Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they scheme and lie. I'm like the deaf who cannot hear like the mute who cannot speak. I've become like one who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. For I said, do not, them, do not let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my feet slip. For I am about to fall and my pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Many have become my enemies without cause. Those who hate me without reason are numerous. Those who repay my good with evil lodge accusations against me, though I seek only to do what is good. Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Saviour. Good morning. My name's Julie. I'm going to start by praying. Lord, your word is powerful and active, even the tough ones, and I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would be working amongst us today, giving us ears to hear and a heart to respond, and Lord, would you speak through me in powerful ways, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've just joined us today, we have been in a series called In the Valley, and it's in the valley because it's like looking in, when you're in the down and out stages of life and those tough emotions that we experience in, in there. So fear, anger, and grief. Next week, we're looking at despair. This week, we're looking at guilt. They're not sort of the happy, joy, clappy emotions, but they're emotions that we feel at times, and it's good to see and learn what God teaches us about it when we get there. Maybe some people today have forgotten what it feels like to feel guilty. So I've just got a couple of little examples here. Uh, If you're a millennial, so aged between 18 and 30, stats show, fashion stats show, that you're quite likely to feel guilty about buying stuff you don't need. Anyone admitting to having a big binging session this weekend? If you did, 
you're amongst 4.5 million people who admit to drinking too much and drinking to get drunk. And a third of those people feel a deep sense of regrets and guilty after binging. Stats continued to look at people's feelings of regret and guilt after binge eating on sugar and chocolates as well. Or perhaps like me, you have a new feeling of plastic bag guilt. Um, I always intend to have one of the many hundred bags in our house in my boot, but sometimes when I get to Coles, I realise I forgot to put them in my boot. So then I have this little dilemma about, do I buy a plastic bag and feel the wrath of guilt from people looking at me for having a plastic bag, or could I actually just do with 10 items and do that grocery sort of juggle to my car? And I usually choose the 10 items and then they fall in my boot and then I juggle them back into the kitchen. The definition by Brene Brown, a leading US researcher in her TED talk, defines guilt as, I did something bad, a feeling which focuses on a behavior. And to, to make amends for that, you can say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. It's different, she says, from shame, which says, I am something bad, or I am something wrong, a feeling which focuses on, her, on self. It's a bit harder to say, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. But she defines the two separately, and it's helpful that I did something bad or did something wrong. But in this definition, who defines wrong? Who defines bad? Let's take one of the previous examples of binge eating on chocolate. If you are one of many, who feel regret and a bit guilty after eating too much sugar, chocolate, choose your substance of choice, who decides how much is too much? Is it after one piece you feel a bit guilty? Oh, I said it was a no sugar day and here I am eating sugar again. Oh no, one piece is fine, Julie. You're allowed to have a bar. You just snap it off like it's a, it's a serving of a bar. Oh, oh good. But what about when you go into the second bar? Is that when the guilt kicks in? Ah, oh, this was my self-rule. I had one bar and now I've gone two. I'm feeling guilty. Or are you thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. If you buy a bar of chocolate, it's yours. But the goal is you have to hide the wrapper because if anyone else sees that you've eaten that whole bar by yourself and they know you haven't shared, that's when you feel guilty because you know you haven't, like it's the communal factor of not sharing. So that wrapper goes into the bin outside instead of the kitchen bin, just so no one notices. I've read people do this. Um, never, <laughs> never done this. While there seems to be an agreed truth that eating too much sugar at any one time is not a good idea, does it make you morally wrong for doing so? And who gets to decide that? Where does the authority for judgment of guilty or innocent lie? I imagine in this room we might have two different perspectives or spe somewhere on the spectrum. On one side, we may have people who are always feeling guilty, always apologizing. I'm sorry I didn't do this. I should have done that. And feeling guilty before God. God, I know you've forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. But on the other hand, we might have people who are like, never felt guilty in my life. Actually, I think guilt's a made-up construct that society puts on us of how we should act and how we should be. As long as we don't harm someone else, you can do whatever you want to. 
Many societies would agree that when you come to harming someone else, there's an element of, no, that's not right. For example, we would all agree murdering is not right. It's harming someone else. It's taking their life. It's morally harmful. But Jesus teaches anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says in anger, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. We might agree that having an affair is harmful to your spouse or to your marriage vows. Yet Jesus teaches anyone who has ever looked lustfully at another person, online or other, has committed adultery with that person in their heart. Jesus' teachings here are radical. He's not teaching about how to be a good person. This is good, this is bad. He's teaching about how to live a lifestyle of holiness, which God asks of us, a standard of holiness which God himself has lived, Jesus himself has lived. Jesus' teachings raise the bar from good and bad to holy and not holy. He sees what's going on in our heart as well as our actions, and anything less than a holy life is breaking the moral code set by our Creator. So one could say it's subject of guilt. How much is too much chocolate until you should feel guilty? How much is too much stuff? How much is too much drinking? How much is not enough exercise? Whatever we, we um, whip ourselves over the back about, it's quite subjective. But here we're looking at something which is objective guilt, where God's authority is the bar and all of creation have fallen short and are guilty of not living the lifestyle of holiness which God asks of us. And as a result, it separates us from God. Oh, I hear some people saying, oh man, I came to church to hear good news. Oh man, I turned off on this day. This is the last time I'm coming to this church. I'm just having a bit of a downer right now. Like I'm not really liking this news. I'd like some bit more encouragement. It's honestly the last Sunday. I encourage you if there's any sort of self-talk going on like that. Jesus wants us to understand where we stand before God so that when we hear what he has done to step in to our place to restore us to God, it's good news and it's all the greater news for understanding the beginning. So hang in there, we'll get there by the end of the sermon. Let's track back a little bit to the psalm we looked at, Psalm 38. In this psalm, guilt remains that I did something bad, I did something wrong. And King David was the author. Throughout his life, he stuffed up a lot. He's a murderer, he's an adulterer, he's done many things. But in this particular psalm, he's not looking, we're not looking at what he did to others. He says that his sin is against God only. So it's his guilt before God. He says that his guilt before God affects relationships and good conscience between himself and God. Verse 1 says, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there's no health in my body, no soundness in my bones because of my sin. Verse 4, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. We see that his guilt affects his personal health and his bones and his immune system. My wounds are festering and loathsome. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. 
It affects his personal well-being. Verse 6, bowed down and brought very low, all day going about mourning, feeble and utterly crushed, I groan in anguish of heart. Strength fails me, sighing all the time. His guilt affects his relationship with others. His soul is low, but in that time, friends aren't rushing towards him. They say He says, they avoid me because of my wounds. His enemies are taking advantage of his time of vulnerability and need. So verse 12, those who seek my life set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they scheme and lie. They hate me without reason and they slander me. Oh, the poor lad. It's quite tough, isn't it? That that feeling of guilt inside has consumed his soul, affected his health and his social standing. He knows he can't do anything about it. So what does he do with this feeling of guilt? What do you do when you're feeling guilty? Back then, he could have gone and bought a lamb and brought it to the local priest and said, would you slaughter it for me? It's my offering to God to make amends for what I've done wrong before him. And that priest would have had a whole lot of self-purification rites before he slaughtered it, made an offering to God and then said, it's accepted, go. But the problem with that is maybe the next day he does it again. There's another sinful thought. There's another sinful action back to the priest running out of lambs to give here. It's a cycle that just keeps going again and again. Throughout the world, we can see that every culture is trying to solve this problem of guilt. It's what's at the heart of sacrificial systems. It plays into thinking around reincarnation cycles and how to make a better lot in your next life. For others, it um, excuses merciless revenge, which is communally permitted to appease their wrongdoing. Sin and guilt need to be dealt with. What does David, the writer of the psalm, do with this objective guilt, this guilt that he's feeling through breaking God's moral law? He didn't buy a lamb. In verse 18 it tells us, he confesses his iniquity to God. He is troubled by his sin. He realises his own inability to fix it and he waits on God to act. Verse 21 says, Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Saviour. Before we carry on, we're going to look now, we're going to sort of jump forward a bit to what Jesus has done and what that means for us. But I want to tell you a story. It might be a story you've heard before in different forms. Picture that we're in a courtroom. I'm the judge. A person has been brought before me and accused of murder. I listen to the evidence. I read our moral code of the day. And I decide, yes, he is guilty of murder. You're guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. The courtroom, some gasp, some cry, some cheer, depending on how they feel connected with that person or the person that was murdered. But then the judge steps away from the court and takes his wig off and puts his hammer down and he goes over to the person and says, you are guilty and your penalty should be life imprisonment, but I want to serve it for you. For love, I'm going to step in. You are young, I am old. I'm going to step in and serve your penalty and I want you to go and live a life of love in return. 
that person has a choice what they do with that offer. Wow, that's crazy. That would never happen. And yet if you did, you know it would make news. How would that person respond? Would they go and forever feel guilty or would they go and forget the judge? My guess in this hypothetical story is the person would go deeply indebted to the debt that has been paid for them, wanting somehow to pay it forward or pay it back to the family of the judge. When stories like this occasionally happen, they make the news because self-sacrifice is unheard of. And yet, it's what God has already done for each of us. God so loved each and every one of us that he sent his only son, Jesus, the only person who had ever lived a perfect life of holiness, to pay for the price for us, to take the punishment for us, and he offers us that same choice of freedom. Jesus, who had never done wrong against God or others, was often called an unblemished lamb, a perfect sacrifice. Instead of needing to go to the temple and buy a sacrifice, he offered himself as the final sacrifice for all who chose him. On the cross, every sin, every guilt, every condemnation, every sickness, every burden was taken into his body, absorbed, overpowered, and he, over, he overcame these things so that we can live without them blocking our access to knowing God. In rising again, he defeated each and every one of these for each and every person. And now we live in a new covenant with no guilt or shame or condemnation. Romans 1.17 says, In God we have a righteousness, meaning being made right before God. We have been made righteous from faith in Christ. So to rephrase that, for those who have faith in Christ, you're okay before God. We're good. We're right. We're restored to God. We are judged free from guilt because of Christ. When he sees us, he sees what, he's, what Jesus has already done. When someone, if I were to say to um, anyone, really, you are a holy person, most people get a bit squirmish. I'm not really. That chocolate analogy, it wasn't totally hypothetical. Um, you know, we, we squirm a little bit. But actually, God says we are holy. God says he's made us holy because we were guilty. But what Jesus has done has taken that guilt, taken that punishment. And now he says you are holy because of what Jesus has done. Yes, it's a process, but you have been sanctified. You, you are being sanctified. You have been made right before me. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Our guilt before God has been forgiven and paid for. You might say, but I still, it's nice. I really like that. It's good, but I still feel guilty sometimes. What should I do about that? Well, for the rest of today, I want to take four different examples. If you still feel guilty, let's look at a test, four different tests that you can apply. Number one. Is it the Holy Spirit convicting you to take action and make things right? This feeling of guilt, is it actually the Holy Spirit convicting you towards action to make things right? I was driving down Chute Street earlier in the week and the two cars in front of me merged and the car on the left, the back of it hit the car on the right 
and it was a little bit of an ugly screeching sound and it pulled like the front section under the number plate, pulled it off and I was like ready going, I'm an eyewitness, we should pull over, I'll give my details to this person in case they need it. And to my surprise, both of them drove off. They just drove off. Huh, wonder if they even know what's happened. I saw it, but maybe for some reason, I don't know. Why are they driving off? And so I had a little choice. Do I follow them? I'm an eyewitness of an event I don't think you know has happened yet. (laughs) Or do I just leave it and do what I was needing to do? And I I left it because I thought it would be a bit ridiculous chasing them around. The next morning, I woke up, felt a twinge of guilt. Not the kind of guilt that weighs you down and you can't sleep and your bones are sore and no one wants to hang out with you anymore. Not that level of guilt. Just like a little bit of a prompter, you know. And I realised, ah, the Holy Spirit's convicting me. The Holy Spirit's convicting me to do what's right here. And I put it off because it was a busy day and who's got time to go do a stat deck? But eventually at the end of the day I thought, no, I have to. The Holy Spirit's prompting me to do this. So I went down to the local police station who hadn't heard of the accident either. He was a bit bemuffled by it all and um, I wrote my details down and said, oh, he'll call me if he needs it. Straight away that feeling of conviction disappeared. What's that about? Our audience is Jesus. I don't even know if those people knew. It was all a bit bizarre. But our audience of one is Jesus and he wants us to live in right doing the right thing, making things right, even if he's the only one that notices. Um, He's given us the Holy Spirit to guide us in this and to prompt us to his way. There's no guilt, shame or condemnation. So if you're feeling guilty, what might God be showing you? Second test, test your feelings with the word of God. It's a powerful tool that sets us free and shows us the heart of God and it's the book that God most often speaks through us in. What do I mean by that? I um, have had a lot of friends that have had babies. I'm sure everyone knows someone who's had a baby. And a lot of them, particularly in a group I was discipling in Brisbane, they'd really enjoy a quiet time every day before. You know, I'd wake up, Julie, and I'd read the chap- a chapter of the Bible, and I'd pray, and I'd take some key bits out of it, and then I'd worship, and that was how I started my day or maybe my evening. It was pretty set routine. Okay, that's great. That sounds wonderful. So what's changed? I've just got no time to have a shower, let alone do that. I'm feeling so guilty. My house is a mess. I'm always washing. I hardly see my husband or my family, let alone actually sitting down and reading a chapter of the Bible. And when I do, it just doesn't relate to me. It feels such a world away. Okay, what's what's the matter? I just feel terrible about my relationship with God. I feel like he's so far and it's going down the drain Okay, let's just stop, take a breath, let's have a cup of tea. And time and time again I've had this chat with young mums and they've said they feel guilty because they're not worshipping God like they used to or feeling as close to him like they used to. And I say to them, where in the Bible does it say your Bible, your time with God needed to look like the five things that they were doing? It's in there. Yeah, but where? Ah. Oh. And they realise it's not in there. It's in there to draw near to God. It's in there to pray all the time. It's in there to meditate on the Lord day and night. There are things in there, but there's grace in there as well. I said, look, you're in a different season. God's kindness is abundant. You know, if I don't know why I've just switched into a Scottish accent. I'm sorry, it just, it just happened. 
<laughs> but for some reason, they're saying you can do those things without it necessarily being a prescribed formula. You can pray as you're having a shower. Maybe your Bible reading is one proverb, full stop. You think about that all day. Maybe as you're nursing your child is when you sing a little song. I said change it to what suits you in this season. God meets you where you're at. It gave them great freedom to realise they weren't being chained to something they thought was a rule, but actually they tested it with the word of God and it wasn't. When you're feeling guilty, check it. What does the word of God say about this? Third test, is it false guilt? The one where we have confessed something to God and we know he, we have, he has forgiven us in our head, but we decide that the punishment put on Jesus wasn't enough and actually we need to punish ourselves a little bit more. There's a song that captures it. I don't actually know the tune, but every little girl I know sings it, the Let It Go Frozen song. <laughs> yep. So let it go, let it go. Be set free. We don't need to be burdened again with a yoke of guilt. And if you find this particularly challenging, I encourage you to seek out prayer for it. After the service today, there'll be people praying in the library, um, that maybe in a life group or speak to one of the staff. We'd love to pray with you about that. I think of the dodgy tax collector in the Bible who was forgiven of many sins, and he was delighted. But he didn't just stand there and go, yeah, I've been set free, I'm no longer guilty. He's like, actually, no, I need to make some things right. I've thieved from a lot of people. I'm going to go and restore and repay what I've taken. Sometimes when we have that lingering sense of guilt, it might be that God wants us to do something more. We've been forgiven, but there's actions to make things right. And finally, number four, so we've got, is it the Holy Spirit convicting you to take actions? Have you tested it with the word of God? Is it false guilt? And finally, is it a prompt to turn to God? If you've been living in guilt and feeling condemned and ashamed, I have good news for you today. Jesus has come to set you free today. There is a better way. You can repent. You can turn from your ways and turn to him. Sometimes guilt is a call out to turn to God. He has come to set the captives free. He has come to heal the brokenhearted. He has come to set the oppressed free. And he desires to meet you this very day in a way which will change your life forever. If you say yes, I encourage you that you're in the company of hundreds of others here who at some stage in their life has made, have made the same choice. Well, what do I do? Verse 18 in the psalm gives us an answer. King David in verse 18 says he confessed his sins to God. Confessing our sins has a way of opening our life to the area that we're trying so hard to hide. And God, in doing that, in loving, tender mercy, shines light on that space and brings new life. We confess our sins to God. We turn from our ways to turn to Jesus, making him first in our life as our Lord and Saviour. And we put our trust in him and live for him. In the valley of guilt, guilt is a prompt to action. Guilt is a prompt to turn to God. 
Guilt should be tested, but there is a way that Jesus has made open that we can walk forgiven, restored, loved and chosen. Um, I'm going to make some space, given the nature of the talk. We're going to go into a time of confession. But before we do, I want to just um, give a little bit of silence to you guys. Maybe there's been something that's stirred and you're thinking, I really want to confess that to God today. The topic that's been on my mind in this sermon, I want to give it to God. Um, So we're going to do that and then we'll switch to the prayer that will be on the screen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, forgive me where I have sinned against you in thought, word or deed. I repent and want to follow your ways. I ask you to be my Lord and my Saviour this day and always. Fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the really good news, and if you want to look at it later, 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And that's just one verse, but it doesn't stop there. He also restores, redeems, creates new life from that point. It's not just a good for good, bad for bad. He does something extraordinary with the things that we bring to him. So we can know, therefore, for those who have prayed and confessed and done that with their heart, that you are forgiven and cleansed and are Christ's own forever, known, forgiven, chosen and loved. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for St. John's Diamond Creek. If you have any questions about this podcast, send us an email, questions at stjohnsdc.org.au. 